0: The Jodcast, now 300% more likely to be interrupted by cats. With Ian Morrison, Haratina Mogashani, Samuel Leske, Fiona Porter, Tian Zeidman, Emma Alexander, George Bendow, and Michael Wright. The Jodcast, August 2020 edition. Hello, and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm Fiona, and joining me in their own separate homes are Tian and Emma. Hi. Hello. So obviously it's been a little while since we last put an episode out. Uh, We are still not allowed into the department, which means we still can't get to our studio. And it's also the time of year where a lot of people take holidays, a lot of people have deadlines, and very few people have their own mic setups at home, unfortunately. So uh, we're sorry for the delay in shows this has caused. Yeah, I mean, hopefully you won't notice too much of a difference once we get going. Um, I know I've staged myself an elaborate fort of um, blankets and pillows to hopefully aid in audio quality. Um, And the cats are very much um, in another part of the house, so hopefully it will not quite be 300% more cats. But (laughs) you never know, they're crafty little beings. Mm. I mean, I had the option of trying to shut mine out or trying to shut mine in. And I decided, for now, she seems happy to stay here and be quiet. But if there are any mysterious noises from my end, I'm going to blame them all on the cat.
1: Yeah, no, I'm tucked away in a bunker deep underground, so hopefully neither cats or noise can interrupt our recording.
2: <laughs> well, fingers crossed. But
0: yes, it's likely that it won't be quite as uh, quite as smooth as our normal recordings, but we will do our best. That we will. Okay. In the show this time, Michael Wright interviews Rosita Kokotanikova about her work on Jupiter Family Comets, and Ian Morrison, Haritina Mobishanu and Samuel Lesky take a look at what's happening in the August night sky. But first, before all of that, here's George Bendo with this month's news.
3: This month in the news, the recovery from the COVID-19 epidemic and the delay of the James Webb Space Telescope. Back in March and April, when various governments around the world imposed lockdowns related to the COVID-19 pandemic, the astronomical community overall was notably affected. Quite a few observatories were forced to close, but not all. Observatories at locations such as Kip Peak in Arizona, Mauna Kea in Hawaii, La Palma in the Canary Islands, and La Silla and Paranal in Chile all shut down. However, some telescopes that operate remotely, including some ground-based telescopes like PANSTARS in Hawaii, and many observatories in space, including the Hubble Space Telescope, continue to operate. Additionally, the South Pole Telescope, where the telescope operators had been physically isolated from the rest of the world since the 15th of February, were able to continue to observe. In addition to this, Many other astronomy-related meetings and other events were affected as well. Several events at the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore, Maryland, that were related to the 30th anniversary of the launch of the Hubble Space Telescope were either canceled or postponed. The National Astronomy Meeting in the United Kingdom, which was supposed to celebrate the 200th anniversary of the foundation of the Royal Astronomical Society, was postponed to next year. Other events and meetings have been going ahead, mostly in the virtual format, as was the case for both the 236th meeting of the American Astronomical Society and the European Astronomical Society annual meeting for 2020, also known as EWAS 2020. Various astronomical observatories around the world that shut down earlier this year are slowly restarting observations. For example, some of the observatories on Mauna Kea, including Keck Observatory, resumed operations back in May. Nonetheless, many other observatories at other sites, including the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, or LIGO in the United States, and the Atacama Large Millimeter-slash-submillimeter Array, or ALMA in Chile, are still shut down. The shutdown even affected the staff and students in Manchester who work at Jodrell Bank Observatory. Both the Lovell Telescope and Merlin were shut down on the 17th of March, and except for a skeleton crew who remained on site for safety reasons, everyone was required to work from home. Starting at the beginning of June, the individual radio antennae were reactivated, and the Merlin array is now operational. Having said that, access to Georgia Bank Observatory or other University of Manchester facilities is still limited, and many people are still working from home. The various coronavirus lockdowns have not only affected the operations of astronomical observatories and other research activities, but have also affected the construction of new observatories, with the Vera Rubin Observatory being one of the most notable examples of this. The lockdown has also affected the schedules of various space-based observatories that have not been launched yet. The most notable delay has been of the James Webb Space Telescope, or JWST, which is the optical and near-infrared telescope that will eventually succeed the Hubble Space Telescope. The JWST is an observatory whose launch has been delayed multiple times before. When first conceived, Scientists envisioned that the JWST would be launched in 2007, but various technical and managerial challenges, as well as issues with contractors, caused the launch to be delayed multiple times and also led to budget overruns. Earlier this year, the launch date was set for March 2021. Unfortunately, the COVID-19 pandemic forced work to stop briefly in March, and then work resumed at only a limited capacity for a couple of months after that, which slowed down a lot of the tests being performed on the spacecraft. These delays would push the launch date back by themselves. However, NASA had other reasons to reschedule the launch. Even before the lockdown, A part of the JWST development schedule called Schedule Reserve, which is time that is intended to be used to handle unforeseen issues, had run low. So the delay allows more Schedule Reserve to be added to the overall schedule. Also, more time has been added to the schedule to perform a series of additional tests on the telescope. Hopefully, the telescope's launch will not be delayed much further. Thanks for that, George.
1: Now Michael Wright interviews Rosita Kokotenekova about Jupiter family comets.
4: Hello, in the studio this week we have Rosita Kokotenekova. Would you like to introduce yourself?
5: Hi, I am a fellow currently at the European Southern Observatory working on small bodies in the solar system.
4: Okay, so thank you for coming here today and agreeing to be interviewed. I think the first question then is There's a lot of small things in the solar system. So what in particular are you looking at?
5: I am mainly interested in comets, so short-period comets, uh, and their relation to their reservoir in the Kuiper Belt beyond the orbit of of Neptune, so the the so-called trans-Neptunian object, and also the centaurs, which are the in-between population between uh, what's in the trans-Neptunian region and what ends up being in the inner solar system as active comets.
4: Okay then, thank you. So so these objects that you're looking at, firstly we'll start with the further out ones. What's interesting to you about them?
5: What's really interesting about them is that the the, the so-called trans-Neptunian objects were formed in the outer solar system uh, as planetesimals that didn't make it into the planet formation, and then during the period of planet migration about four billion years ago, were sent off beyond the orbit of Neptune where they were preserved for the past four billion years, uh, almost unchanged so they keep uh, the properties of the initial planetesimals and are very interesting to study the properties of the protoplanetary disk
4: In that case then, if this was from the planet forming regions how do we know how they ended up out there?
5: So these were clues that were collected in the past, mainly 20, 30 years, uh, they were, the, the first Kuiper Belt object, uh, was found, uh, in 1993. Before that, we, we only knew of the existence of Pluto and we thought that Pluto was alone out there in the outer solar system. And then, uh, slowly people started finding more and more of these objects, figuring out that there is a whole population of uninvestigated bodies. They tried to figure out how they ended up there and they uh, understood that there was the process of planet migration and actually used these objects to study exactly the details of how this happened, how Jupiter and Saturn and, and the outer planets scattered these bodies from closer to the Sun to further out there.
4: Okay, and once they're out there, you said they were unchanged for a very long time. So how come they're now so unchanged from what they were before?
5: Well, they're very far away from the sun, so uh, their ices are are protected from from sublimation out there. Uh, they're exposed to cosmic rays uh, that change the, the surface layers of the bodies, but mainly uh, they are not. Uh, the, the interiors remain unchanged. Uh, also, the collision rates out there are very small, so the bodies. Uh, almost never get destroyed by collisions, they don't get further craters, and that's why we, we think that they're very pristine.
4: Okay, and have we been able to check that then, say, have a look at them and see that there are very few craters?
5: Yeah, we we actually have an answer to this as of uh, 2019. Uh, in January last year, we had uh, New Horizons, that was a NASA spacecraft that first visited the Pluto system. It continued further in the Kuiper belt and investigated uh, an object called two thousand and fourteen mu sixty nine and we have direct images of the surface of this body and we, we actually see that it has very few craters
4: okay and so that's wonderful that 's something we actually know now then and that has i 'll move on to the next thing then so in longer form, why are you studying these objects, what's interesting about them?
5: What's really interesting about them is that, as I said earlier, they can reveal the properties of the first planetesimals uh, in, in the solar system, and uh, that is in terms of composition, also density, what 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 they consist of, how, how the material is structured, so this is very interesting and it helps constrain planet formation. Um, it helps us connect the formation of the solar system to to, to other uh, systems where planets are being formed currently, so we can make comparisons if we get the composition of these objects or comets we compare them to, to other planetary systems so that's why they're very uh, interesting to study. Also um, the, the dynamics, so where they ended up after the period of planet migration is very interesting because that can constrain how uh, where exactly the giant planets formed, how many of these bodies uh, were out there, how many were ejected from the solar system, and how many ended up there, and in what exactly orbits.
4: Okay, and are there any bits of that in particular that you're working on?
5: So what I'm working on uh, in, in terms of the very outer population, so the the, the Kuiper Belt objects is constraining their rotational light curves, uh, by, by looking at their photometry, so how the brightness of these objects changes when they rotate around their axis and also their surface properties so uh, their albedos, uh, which is the, the reflectance, what percentage of the light they reflect and also their phase function, So how their brightness changes with the increase of the angle between uh, the observer, the Sun and the object and these things can reveal details about the the actually the microscopic properties of the surfaces of these objects
4: so in particular then what microscopic properties are we looking at
5: so there are studies of how materials from meteorites for example uh that were taken here on 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 earth and were Lit with light from, with different angles. So the, we, we have information how similar material to that material responds to light. So what, what we see with changing phase angle. So we try to compare what we observe remotely, uh, from the Kuiper belts to the materials that we have here on earth available to study in the lab. And that's how we can compare and try to study the photometric properties and derive real microscopic properties. So in terms of size, of, of the, the, the individual dust particles on the surface uh, their porosity, how close they are to one another and how much voids uh, there are in between them and, and so on
4: oh, well. And this then links back to the early planetesimals in the solar system we expect them to be very similar In,
5: in a way yes, also we, we should keep in mind that some of these objects uh, did collide in the past so it could be a result of that so it helps us constrain what we see now so we, we try to characterise the bodies that we see now and, and yes, we try to connect them to what, what was there in the past
4: That's that's an interesting idea, so you said you're a fellow with the European Southern Observatory so could you sort of talk a bit about what that is and why it's useful for your work?
5: So the European Southern Observatory is um, the the, the biggest and most productive observatory, as as we say, in terms of published papers in the world. Uh, We have a few sites in Chile, uh, in the Atacama Desert, where we have optical and radio telescopes. And being a research fellow at ESO, you're allowed to do your uh, own independent research project for three years. and on top of that, you get to do 25% of your time on functional work for ESO. Um, and that is, is, is particularly useful for, for someone who's at the start of their career, because you get exposed to to the life in the observatories, you, you, you get expertise on different instruments, depending on what duties you choose. Um, you can learn many different things that are very useful after that. And in my case, I'm a support astronomer, for uh, UT3, which is one of the VLT telescopes, and I get to learn how the telescope is operated, uh, what our science programs are, and and how the instruments function. Ah,
4: Okay, so that's quite different then to a lot of research, which is sort of entirely focused on the thing you're working on. You actually get to do a few different projects around it.
5: Yes, yeah, so you, you you get to do extra things on top of your main research work. You, you get to get involved in whatever project the observatory has to offer at this time.
4: Okay, so you've now talked a bit about the far off the trans Neptunian objects and your work studying them. You also mentioned objects closer in, slightly closer in. Could you tell us a bit about what you're working on with them?
5: Yes, so the, the Jupiter family comets, or, or the short period comets, as they're also known, uh, are in the closer into to the Sun uh, So they have orbits that are typically with uh, periods of less than 20 years So they rotate the Sun for about 20 years or less uh, And these uh, objects are exposed to much more illumination from the Sun and they start sublimating when they're close, so about 3AU, water sublimation becomes very dominant, and, and we see these objects sublimating, losing mass and actually revealing their interiors. Um, so that is why they're very interesting, because they sort of preserved some properties while they were stored out in the outer solar system in the Kuiper belt. Then they had a, a journey back to the inner Solar System and when they become active comets they release uh, clues about what's inside of them and that, that makes them very interesting and fascinating to study because the objects that are out there in the outer Solar System we have no access to their interiors we can only study there uh, we can only study it uh, through, through, through other methods uh, but directly observing the gases and the dust that's in the interiors of comets is, is something unique to these objects.
4: And is there anything in particular that you've found, like, out of what they're made of, any particular substances that you found in there?
5: Not particularly me in my work. So I was very fortunate to do my PhD while the Rosetta mission was ongoing, and I, I witnessed many new discoveries that the mission did. Um, in in terms of activity, but what I focus mainly on are the nuclei themselves and how they they have changed due to this activity when they're close to the sun and also throughout their journey from the transneptunian region through the centaur phase when they start being active. So they're uh, mainly asteroid so inactive among the giant planets, and then when they reach uh, Jupiter. Um, they, they, they become Jupiter family comets. So this whole journey leaves marks on the objects and that's what I'm mainly interested in.
4: In that case, could you tell us about sort of what you found out about those marks and that journey? Do you, what have you found out about what happens along that journey to them?
5: So what, what we've found so far is that we might actually be able to, to learn more about this process using ground observations because uh, the clues that we have so far for the about the surfaces of, of Jupiter family comets is from the, the five or so space missions that went and observed them in situ and what they discovered is that depending on how much time the comets have spent in the inner solar system they have different topography so the ones that are very pristine that, that have more or less just entered the, the, the inner solar system they have uh, much more prominent cliff topography so they, they, they don't have smooth surfaces while as they spend more time orbiting closer to the sun they lose material and these steep cliffs get eroded gradually and the, the comet surfaces of evolved comets uh, end up being very smooth and dominated just by dust particles so large smooth terrains on them and we might be able to study this from the ground through studying the, 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 the opposition effect of, of Jupiter family comets which is how their brightness changes with increased phase angle or angle between the observer, the Sun and the object
4: If their brightness changes with that angle then is there any sort of particular angle you're looking for that will give you the best results?
5: Yes, so indeed the best results would come when you observe at very small phase angles so the so-called opposition when when the, the phase angle is, is very very small so when you go close to phase angle 0 uh, you start actually understanding more about the microscopic properties um, which is when you can do the modeling because what happens is the smaller the angle gets the brighter the the object is, and if it's a linear function at larger phase angles, then it becomes. Um, you, you, at small phase angles, you observe the so-called opposition surge, or or the object becomes much brighter. And by modeling this effect, you 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 start understanding more about the microscopic properties. And what I'm particularly interested in is actually the the, the linear regime at moderate phase angles, so let's say between 5 and and 20 degrees, which is observable for for comets, so the the range that you can observe is determined by the distance between you and the object, and for comets we are able to probe this range, and that is where we think uh, what dominates the shape of this function is not the microscopic properties, but it's actually this microscopic topography that you observe, so these steep cliffs or a more smoother terrain. You've explained
4: this effect of comets going from being these sharp, cliff-like objects to something very smooth and rounded. Could you explain a bit more what happens as time goes on, as they tick towards the end of their lives?
5: Yes, comets can have two types of ends of their life. One is very spectacular, so they're, they're either so active that the torques that are exerted on on, on their surface from uh, jets triggered by activity are spinning the objects up uh, or causing big outbursts and then uh, the comets start splitting they disintegrate, they lose material, they become very bright and very interesting to study or they can have the less spectacular end of their life where their activity slowly decreases because it becomes more and more difficult for sunlight to penetrate the thick layers of dust that are building up uh, and we think they could act as blankets that slowly quench the activity of the comet and they convert into so-called dormant or, or dead objects and we we have evidence that such objects can be found closer to Earth uh, and it's, it's, it's fascinating to think that they, they were once active comets and now they just are hiding around Uh, in in the asteroid population in the near-Earth space, and we don't see any activity anymore.
4: Okay, so could we still tell them apart from other asteroids?
5: Uh, We are working on ways of trying to find out. One way that we we are thinking about is using uh, their surface, uh, so this opposition effect behavior, it could be different for asteroids and, and comets. Uh, also, the people have tried distinguishing them using uh, spectra or colors of, of their surfaces because if they come from different populations, they should look slightly different but we need much more evidence to, to look for that and it's an interesting question because it makes a difference for, for Earth uh, defense because it's, it's one thing to try to defend the planet from a comet and another thing to, to try to, to deal with an asteroid
4: uh, okay, so you might have to work it out in a different way.
5: It's it's an important question to study. Also, in the very far future, it would be important for asteroid mining, where you'd be interested in, in objects that are rich in water. And that's why uh, it's important to know which objects have ices and which ones are purely asteroidal and don't, don't have any water in them.
4: Oh, that's clever, because the comet ones would have inside the water. That's yeah. really cool. Okay, then. And I think ending on a rather hopeful note for humanity of Mm -hmm. mining asteroids and finding water, I think that's a good place to end. So thank you very much, Rosita, for coming and having an interview with us.
5: Thank you for having me.
4: Ah, Lovely. Back to the studio.
0: Thanks for that, Mike. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other bits that we can't fit in anywhere else, the odds and ends. So who wants to start us off this time?
1: I think Fiona, you're at the top of the list, so you start
0: as well. Ah, <laughs> uh, the burdens of responsibility. Okay. Well, have either of you two heard much about asteroid deflection? I have not. Um, other than just kind of doom-saying conspiracy theories, not not too much, to be honest. <laughs> I think that's the image most people have of it, really. Uh, it's a sort of thing which I think sometimes shows up in disaster movies, you know the asteroid which is going to kill us all has to be stopped at any cost. And to be fair, this is something of an actual concern, if not, you know, a very imminent one. Uh, There are about 22,000 known near-Earth asteroids, and about 2,000 of those are considered potentially dangerous due to a combination of how large they are and how close their orbit comes to Earth. So obviously an actually large asteroid strike would have environmental consequences. Case in point, the dinosaurs. That's the one everyone knows, isn't it? Oh no, please don't tell me that you're on a conspiracy theory bandwagon. I'm not on a conspiracy theory <laughs> bandwagon. <laughs> Events of that size happen so, so few and far between. There are just so few asteroids of that size. And obviously the thing is, with ones that size, they're relatively easy to spot as asteroids go. So... There is a system to track potentially dangerous asteroids. It's mostly just observes where they are, what their orbits are going to be like, and so on. So we can watch them. We can be warned if something potentially dangerous did happen to come our way. But at the moment, there's not much we could actually do about it. It's just sort of a case we go, oh, dear. Um, So this is happening. You know, that would really be the icing on the top of the 2020 cake, wouldn't it? It really would
1: be. Because there's now the headlines. And (laughs) it would just, yeah, just just be another event that passes in in a week's time.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's just like, oh, so this is how we're doomed this time. Oh, well, I guess that's life. But, so obviously, we'd like to be able to do something about this. So the idea with asteroid deflection is that if there is a dangerous asteroid incoming, we crash something into it to knock it sufficiently off course that the Earth is unharmed. So think of it as, I suppose, just a really, really big game of outer space snooker or something like that.
1: I prefer Uh, (laughs) billiards.
0: Well, fair enough. I feel like that's um, something out of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It absolutely uh, is, I'm sure. (laughs) The Vogons decide that poetry isn't their thing anymore and just just decide to do planetary sneaker. Why not? (laughs) So the concern about this is that, you know, we don't want to make the situation worse. We don't want to take an asteroid which is in a potentially close call, dangerous orbit and knock it into a definitely going to hit us orbit. That would, you know... That would be what uh, we in the astronomical community call bad. It would be I bad. I mean, that—that's just your your stereotypical plot escalation of uh, of a disaster film, right? <laughs> it really. Uh, is. There's some, there's some. The the genius protagonist of the film is warning, no, no, these are the wrong numbers. But all of the other mainstream scientists are like, no, no, we know what we're doing. And then our our hero uh, manages to swoop in and save the day at the last minute, and mm-hmm. uh, the asteroid doesn't hit the earth. Uh-huh just it does seem like a little bit of a warning for like the consequences of hubris but, mm. so because of this before it actually has to be tested in an actual emergency situation nasa has decided they want to test it in a much more controlled and safe way uh they're planning a test of an asteroid deflection craft. it's called dart the double asteroid redirection test in 2022 and the plan is to crash it into a small asteroid orbiting another small asteroid. So I guess that's where the double asteroid comes from in the it? name. Precisely. It's one of those very creative astronomy names. We're so good at naming things, aren't we? And uh, and, a- and acronyms we we really kill the acronym game. Actually, speaking of names, these asteroids have names. Oh. So originally only the larger one had a name, it was called Didymos, which means twin in Greek because of the smaller one orbiting it. And the smaller one didn't have a name of its own, so it was known generally as either Didymos B or, and I love this one, Didymoon. (laughs)
1: That's great. That's lovely.
0: That's really cute. But since it's become an actual target to crash things into, it now has its own name. It's called Dimorphos. So that means two forms, because it's going to be the first object which humanity has altered the natural orbit of, which I think is pretty cool. Mm. Uh, so Didymos is about 780 meters across, Dimorphos is about 160 meters across, which in terms of asteroids, like it's not, it's not tiny, it's not especially impressive, and. Dimorphos is orbiting at a radius of about 1.2 kilometers, and it currently takes about 12 hours to complete an orbit. It's actually already past closest approach with Earth. It was 7.2 million kilometers away in 2003, which again in space terms is actually not that far. And the next closest approach will actually be in 2123, when it will be 5.9 million kilometers away. So again, we're not talking actually significantly dangerous here. It's close enough that we can get a good look at what's going on. It's not so close that we are immediately going to go, oh no, oh no, it's going to kill us. You 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 know there's going to be that you know there's going to be newspaper articles to that effect anyway. There always is. Because of this, I've actually found some comparisons. So I went and had a look up at how large the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs was. The estimates on it are very broad. They think it was anything between 11 kilometres and 81 kilometres across. I mean, that's order of magnitude, right? You know, that's, that's good enough in astronomy, most of the time. <laughs> in astronomy, yes, yeah, that, in astronomy, that's small potatoes. I also had a look at the one in Russia, which produced a lot of spectacular dash cam videos a couple of years ago. I believe that was Chelyabinsk. Oh, I remember that one. So that was 20 metres across. And what actually caused the damage wasn't the impact of the asteroid, or the meteor in that case, it was the airburst. So when we're talking about Didymos and Dimorphos, we're not talking planet killers, but they pack a decent punch. But the impacts of that sort of scale would happen roughly every 16,000 years for Dimorphos and 190,000 years for Didymos. So again, this is not something we're expecting to happen anytime soon. I'd also like to talk a little bit about why we're going for this system, because it initially might seem that doing this with two asteroids is really just overcomplicating it. You've got to worry about each of their individual orbital dynamics. But that's actually why this system is being picked, because if it's just an asteroid out there in the asteroid belt, it's not the easiest to tell exactly what changes occurred and what's happened because of the surrounding asteroids and so on. It's a bit trickier to pin down the dynamics. But in this particular case, because Dimorphos' orbiting did enough, we'll be able to track the changes in the orbit quite easily. It's going to be a lot easier to tell exactly what's going on. So the planned alteration is actually quite slight. What they're hoping to do uh, by crashing Dart into it is changing its orbital velocity by about half a millimeter per second, which doesn't sound like a lot, does it? But then, yeah, and especially when, as as you mentioned before, you know, space scale is just on a completely different level to kind of numbers that the human mind, I think, can sometimes comprehend. So you've got, you know, these millions and millions of kilometres um, when talking about how close they're going to be. And then we're talking about changing things by, like, a millimetre or something. It, it, yeah, it doesn't seem like very much at all. Mm. Well, that's part of the point, really. We only want to change a little bit so we can just test test our control in part but also make sure that we don't end up crashing them into each other because that would just cause more mess. So what this should actually do to the orbit is make it about 200 seconds shorter which again proportional to 12 hours isn't a huge amount but it is definitely observable from Earth. So it's something we will be able to have a look at once we've done it, see if it's behaving how we expected it to and just readjust our expectations for what's going to happen if we try and do this with something a bit bigger in the future see the question i have from that is if we or if they're going to be changing it by that small amount um how realistic is that going to be to scale it up because again changing an orbit by that small am- an amount and that's so you said that that was the from dark crashing into it yes yeah. Right. So how big of a spacecraft are we going to have to crash into other asteroids to move them in a significant way? Or is it all about kind of hitting them at um, the, the, just the right angle to get maximum uh, impact? I think it's a combination of angle and velocity to a great extent, because obviously out there in space, you don't need to worry about annoying little things like friction. So if you can manage to build up enough acceleration, you could even a relatively small craft, realistically pack a significant punch. Yeah. One of the things that I found when I was researching this is that they estimated the size of the crater it's going to leave on Dimorphos. I didn't actually get a measure of how big Dart is but half a millimetre a second doesn't sound like a lot. But this is an asteroid about 160 metres across and it's going to leave about a 20 metre crater, they think.
1: Jeez,
2: (laughs) that's a lot.
0: That's, That's pretty big. It's pretty big. Mhm. I, I assume that a lot of uh a lot of what's going into this is just very much play it safe. We want to make sure this is going to behave the way we thought it would before we start messing around with that too much. Because the thing about the asteroid belt is obviously big multi body system.
1: Yeah. I th- I think one of the like main ideas is that the further back that you can impact the trajectories, the smaller uh deviation that you need to put it off course from the earth so you really only need a very small nudge in either direction for it to uh, miss the earth you know thankfully
0: exactly and i mean we've previously detected asteroids with a couple of hours of notice which were in the two to five meter range so if we've got a couple of hours warning on something that small if it's something like as big as dimorphos never mind Didymos. we'd see that coming a long way out we have the warning. We could actually take a bit of time to make sure we know what we're doing. As long as we get things like this test done first, so we can make sure they behave exactly how we think they are.
1: Yeah, it's, it seems like that's sort of the the main thing is that, is that it's testing is that ability to detect the thing from far away and then impact its trajectory in a predictable way, more than necessarily having a, a huge impact on it.
6: Mm, exactly. Which,
0: I think, on the whole, is probably the best move, isn't it? Yeah. We don't want to create a disaster movie. <laughs> Again, 2020, I just... I I can see it happening. <laughs> yeah, I think I think we've had enough for now. Let's just... We have definitely had enough. Mm-hmm. Although, speaking of actually pretty cool events in 2020, pass on to you, Emma. Sure. I mean, in, in the past, you know, comets have been considered naysayers of doom, right? Or just you know, some other prophetic kind of uh, event. I think we would have to um, rescind our credentials as an astronomy podcast if we didn't mention the big astronomy event of recent times, and I am talking, of course, of Comet Neowise, or to give it its full official designation, C slash 2020 f S3, and then in brackets Neowise. It rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Um, It's uh, really a a, a snappy uh, title, isn't it? So, just just to explain um, the comet's name, if uh, anyone is is curious. So the S3 comes from the fact that it was the third comet discovered in the second half of March 2020, so... Each month, we'll get kind of A, B, C, D, E, F to to split it up throughout the year. And NEOWISE comes from the fact that it was discovered during the NEOWISE mission of the Wide Field Infrared Survey Explorer, or WISE, space telescope. So this is the kind of thing where um, comets, you know, do get spotted reasonably often. As this S three means that it was the third such object spotted within that time period. So and and with comets as well you don't necessarily know how spectacular they were going to be in fact i think i remember speaking recently on the broadcast about um a a recent comet which kind of disappointed really it was uh, expected to maybe do great things and then it ended up breaking up and uh, not necessarily putting on a spectacular show but with neowise i think that it it, it almost definitely came out of nowhere um i guess from our perspective and is Providing, yeah, a bit of a highlight um, of what would otherwise be a little bit of a, hmm, yeah, not great yet, yeah. Um, but we can we can always look to astronomy to, uh, kind of, bring bring some good stuff uh, to the table. So yeah, I mean, I'm sure everyone has heard many many things about NEOWISE at this point. You will have had to have been living under a rock, I think, to uh, to not have heard of this comet and. I would suspect that listeners of the broadcast will definitely have heard of this comet before. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I don't think much uh, introduction is required here. Um, you know, I, I even had, you know, people that I've not spoken to necessarily in years, you know, message me and be like, oh, Emma, you know, what, this comet, how do I see it? What, what's going on with that? I saw it in the news, and I think for me, that's the beauty of Comet Nearwise is that it's really captured the imaginations of. You know, people beyond the astronomy community, obviously the, the astronomy community has been getting very, very excited about it. But I think this is one of the rare occasions where there's something that the media has picked up on and, and is hyping up in terms of being a big astronomical event. And it actually has been, been warranted by it. So it's, uh, yeah, I've I just really enjoyed all the hype around it, to be honest. It really has been something. I've just for a while, everywhere you look, there were just these beautiful, spectacular photos of it. Yeah. Gosh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the two of you managed to see it from, uh, well, I was going to say, from from lovely light-polluted Manchester. Tragically not. I did I did try, but unfortunately where I live, the skyline in the right direction was just so surrounded by skyscrapers. There just wasn't any space on top of the light pollution.
1: Yeah, I, I tried as well, but just too much light pollution where I am, which is a bit disappointing, but...
0: I think I'm quite lucky in the fact that I've got quite a good northern view because actually that that was another thing about the comet right was that it was in the northern sky and for me that that's i mean, most of the interesting things astronomically in my opinion are, are towards the southern sky you know that's that's where the, um, the the planet you know it's where the ecliptic line um is in the northern hemisphere and so um I always just kind of assume that if something has got a good southern sky, then that's that's a great place to view things astronomically. But of course, if you're looking for something in the northern sky, then you're going to need to you know have have a good view out to the north. And despite me living south of the city centre and looking directly into uh, the heart of Manchester as I'm looking north, um, I just I just happened to have you know a, a, a reasonably clear view out, and I did manage to just spot it from my back window um And honestly, it. So this this is the first time that I've I've seen a comet. Um, this is the the brightest comet in the northern hemisphere since Hal in in 1997, which I was a, a bit too young, I think, to <laughs> to appreciate at the time. <laughs> Likewise. Um. So um, I think you know I I remember looking out for Pan stars when when that came by. however many years ago now? I can't remember exactly what year it was, but um, never managed to see it. Um, and so. This this is really kind of a, almost like a once in a lifetime thing, right? If you if you are too young to remember Hale Bopp or even Harry's Comet in the 80s, or you just didn't manage to see those at the time, I think if you're in the northern hemisphere, this was the first chance to be able to see a comet with your own eyes, because comets do come by reasonably often, and you know pe- people with telescopes will will take photos of them and you know, they look like very nice fuzzy, fuzzy blobs, quite often a nice green colour to them. But um, it, it's really another thing to be able to see a comet with the naked eye. And from the middle of the cities as well, like I said, I, I could see it from my house in Manchester, which to me, I mean, it was it was very, very hard to see because of you know, light pollution and, and, and all of that. But I could see it. With my own eyes. Um, And I've got an old pair of binoculars, and um, I I got an even better view through those as well. And it was just really a revelation to be able to do some really cool astronomy from the middle of Manchester, because I know personally I I did a lot more practical backyard astronomy before I moved over to Manchester. It's something that I've not really had the chance to do in recent years since being in Manchester um I say in recent years I've been in Manchester a while well, wow, se- seven years I think I've I've been kind of without a um you know a good clear dark sky um, to do practical astronomy and so it's something that I think I know I've personally really missed and I'm sure that's something that listeners might be able to relate to if you do live in a city you know how rare it is to be able to go out somewhere dark in order to see some 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 good astronomical sites and just the fact that i could see this comet from my back window and my my friends and neighbors and people who otherwise you know they've not necessarily got an interest in astronomy but kind of being able to engage them and being like look there is a comet you can see it out of our back window you know i've got my neighbors to look out of their windows and everyone was like yeah this is this is really really cool and um for me It was less about the the spectacularness of the comet. I mean, it's a very spectacular comet and, you know, there are some amazing, amazing images um, online of it. And um, if you've not seen them already, then you should definitely have a look at um, Antony Holloway's images of Neowise over the Lovell Telescope and Drogdale Bank. I think they are beautiful, beautiful images. I did manage to get a couple of snaps myself, but, you know, they they were never, they were never going to be as good as Um, some of the really professional photographs that have been taken. And there there are so many spectacular images, um, you know, that you can only really obtain through, you know, long exposures and, and stacking and other image processing techniques. Which are a little bit beyond maybe the average backyard astronomer. I mean, it's it's way beyond me. I'm I'm definitely uh, a, p- a point and snap. I mean, my my signature uh, style of astrophotography is um, phone camera up to the eyepiece of a telescope, which you know it can actually get pretty decent results. Yeah, I mean, if it works, right? Yeah. So I feel I feel like for me, the the appeal of this comet wasn't necessarily its beauty. And don't get me wrong, it's a beautiful, beautiful comet. And even now that. Um, it's starting to fade, um, you know, it's stopped being quite as active and um, it's, its tail is no longer as spectacular as it was as it's quietening down a bit as it's moving further away from the sun but you've still got this lovely fuzzy green coma that has been brought out beautifully in, in some photos that people have taken. I think for me personally it's less about you know that sheer beauty of it and just the fact that it was almost a communal experience, you know, for a while Everyone was talking about it, and you know, everyone had some opportunity to see it. And obviously, you know, I, I was very lucky because it happened to be that the night that I was looking out for it, um, it was it was clear, and the weather conditions were fine. I know after the first two nights of seeing it, um, I think we then we had like at least a week straight of cloudy weather here in Manchester. So. Um, as ever, it is always dependent on the weather um again, Taylor's oldest time in astronomy, <laughs> isn't it just? but um, especially since you know re- recent comets are' so like sworn and Atlas that we've had recently, and they they never quite got to maybe their their full potential, but then a beacon in these dark times, the comet neowise literally came into our skies and you know provided so much excitement for the astronomy community and and wider and you know I could I could talk about you know I've got notes here about exactly what its orbital period was and you know how how it increased as it swung around the sun and various things about its magnitude but now that I'm talking I'm just I'm just sitting here like this was a really cool event this was really really cool you know you don't need me to tell you numbers and figures and facts I'm those things I'm sure people have come across already. I just wanted to revel in the fact that this was such a beautiful thing and I'm so glad, um, I feel so personally lucky that I got to experience it and it's a shame, a real shame, if you didn't. I'm sorry, I realise this now almost seems like I'm Um uh, Yeah, yeah I've, been,
1: I've been having to rely on, on photographic evidence but uh, I can definitely endorse those images of, of the comet over the level. Those were personally for me very profound because you know we in the before times we used to visit the every week and we haven't been in a couple of months and you know you, you don't realize how much you miss these things so uh, yeah 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 some personal significance there as well
0: yeah well this is what i mean even even if you didn't manage to, to see it yourself just yeah just even the images coming out um everywhere there's just oh, this i don't even know how to put it into words but I've I just really, really enjoyed uh, the kind of spirit of comet community, um, over the past um month or so. It's been really nice.
1: It has welcome distractions or
0: so. very much so. Exactly. And um, you know, I think as well because the fact that it it's been the first comet visible in the northern hemisphere, you know, the good comet, in fact, I think there's there's some debate at the moment as to whether it, it can go into the um, the class of kind of great comets, the historically significant, you know, exceptionally bright comets. I mean, to me, I think it gets the title of great comet just based on, you know, the fact that it, it has literally been a shining beacon of light in, in these troubling times. Um,
1: yeah. I mean, it's, it's great in our hearts anyway. It's absolutely great in our
0: hearts. Exactly. So, um, yeah, and uh, and it and it did even manage to sneak into southern hemisphere skies as well. So uh, you know, it's it's not like it's been an exclusive thing for us Northern Hemisphere people as well. The whole world, in some way, has had some opportunity to view this, and oh, it's it's been amazing. I've loved it. That's probably a good point for me to end on. I think. Um, what was what was your other end,
1: So, from one spectacular event to another, somewhat different one. Earlier this month, a new paper presented the first observations of a particular type 1a supernova. Now, for a bit of background, 1as are a subclass of supernova that are quite different from the other ones in that it's not created by the collapse of the core of an aging star, but rather by a process called thermal runaway. And that happens in a binary system in which at least one object is a white dwarf, And if that white dwarf accretes matter from its companion or it collides with the companion, then it can heat up to a temperature that reignites carbon fusion in the star and it starts this runaway nuclear reaction of carbon being burned faster and faster and faster until you have that extremely violent explosion of the supernova. That's the basic idea, but there are a number of open questions, especially concerning the nature of that companion star. People have made all sorts of predictions about what you would expect to see, assuming different types of companion objects, and one of those predictions is that if the companion is a regular active star, so not a white dwarf or a neutron star or something like that, then you would expect to see perhaps a flash of UV radiation alongside the usual optical explosion event. So, people have been looking for these ultraviolet flashes for over a decade now. And over the thousands of supernovae that have been observed since, the first one that was accompanied by a UV burst was detected back in 2015 and then at the end of last year there was a second one which was detected by the Zwicky Transient Facility in California. So of course immediately there was some follow-up monitoring of the source in the optical ultraviolet and x-ray regimes which is what this paper is reporting on. And uh, as you would expect, following the initial flash, uh, the brightness of the supernova fell precipitously over the next few days, but then very strangely, at around day four, there was a sun reversal, and it grew brighter in both optical and UV of light, reaching a peak around day 17, and then it trailed off again. Uh, and so considering that supernovae should just grow fainter as they grow colder and, and grow older, uh, this is pretty unexpected and very revealing because uh, it indicates that something in that system is incredibly hot and you'd need something three or four times as hot as the sun to explain that. So this makes a very promising prospect for constraining models and, and better understanding what goes on in these kinds of supernova systems. So this paper looks into a couple of ideas that might explain the presence of that UV radiation and the strange bump brightness, all of which are really interesting to me. Uh, For example, one model posits that the supernova ejector might contain radioactive nickel 56 particles and those could collide with the companion star and heat up the surface and produce uh, thermal UV radiation. Uh, Another idea is that, uh, that at some point helium would ignite uh, thermonuclear reactions in the carbon within the star so that the bump is a second explosion altogether. And then lastly there's a the suggestion that the ultraviolet radiation could be produced assuming a, a double white dwarf system so that's another possibility as well. And in the immediate future these models would be further refined and the predictions as to how the supernova remnant will evolve over time will serve to narrow down to a much clearer understanding of what's happening in these systems. This has all sorts of implications for different fields, for example uh, type 1 supernovae are the source of the majority of iron in the universe, and different models predict different amounts of iron to come out of the explosions. So constraining that figure is pretty important for, for example, element synthesis or planet formation studies. Uh, And then they're also used as uh, standard candles for cosmological distance measurements, which go into calculations of universal expansion and dark energy and that kind of thing. So all that said, I guess I wanted to share this because I think it's serves to show that science is still going on, it's still happening and that despite everything, astronomers are still being baffled by new developments on a daily, as things should be.
3: <laughs>
1: I know in my own subfield, of a subfield of transient astronomy, there have been some really exciting developments in the last couple of months, and I'm very happily as confused as ever about them. I think what I want to impart to our listeners is that optimistic outlook, which I know has been hard to come by lately, that there are still things to discover and, and things to find out, and hopefully the podcast can serve some purpose in bringing that optimism to people.
0: That's so beautiful. That is. Oh, <laughs> I feel I feel like I'm bringing the tone of this odds and Ends down. That I start off with all my doom and gloom and and asteroids and disaster, and then you two come in with all this this lovely stuff. Well, I don't know, like you know, your 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 one was focused on how to avoid an asteroid disaster, right? Um and you know even even if there were some slight negative tones to that it's it's only up from there isn't it I suppose so isn't it
1: Yeah I mean these these are the things that you start to sort of contemplate when events happen and and things are placed in pretty sharp relief of Why are we doing this and and all of that and they are very cynical answers to that question but I think they're also very hopeful answers. The least that I think we can do is sort of bring that hope that these things do offer to people who need them.
0: Hmm. I'm just looking at looking up some of these um, images of the of the supernova because my first thought was. You know, is is this something that you'd be able to see just with, you know, a backyard telescope? And there's a few images that I'm finding online. People have posted on Flickr and stuff like that. It's a little tiny dot, but you can you can make it out. And I think, you know, it looks like people have got some reasonably serious stuff. I can see there's one here that was taken with a... um, How did that? Telescope 0.25 metres. Mate, well... Either way, you need some pretty good astrophotography equipment to to capture it. But um,
1: yeah, I think it went down all the way to like 17 magnitude or something, which
0: is oh, that that is a that is a challenge. Yes. Uh, it's just it's just like a little, almost like a little pimple on the galaxy. Just uh, just a little <laughs> spot. It's not not too far away from the uh, from the centre of the galaxy. It's uh,
1: I like that. Although the, I mean, the image of a bursting pimple is maybe not the one that uh, it's the one to bring down the tone.
0: <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe not. It's a, it's a beauty spot. It's a beauty spot on the galaxy. That's, we'll, we'll go with that. That could actually be a pretty good transition if you can figure out how to link that into the night sky. And from one small dot in the night sky to all the other small dots that you can see in the night sky. There we go, that's the link. Uh, here's Ian Morrison with this month's night sky. Beautiful.
2: The night sky... For August 2020. In last month's night sky, I suggested you looked out for what are called noctilucent clouds, very high ice clouds seen in the north, illuminated by the sun when it's below the horizon. Well, they did occur, and on the 11th of July, a colleague of mine, David Tolliday, took a wonderful picture of them over Manchester. But also in the sky then, of course, was comet Neowise. It's a beautiful picture and I would suggest you have a look for it. Search for Night Sky Jogrel and drop down to the Centre for Astrophysics and you'll find it. Well, what about this month? As darkness falls, the bright star Arcturus in Bootes is falling towards the western horizon and centre stage in the south is a summer triangle made up of the three stars Deneb in Cygnus, Vega in Lyra an Altair in Aquila. It's a lovely part of the sky, and the Milky Way runs through Cygnus. And if you have a really dark sky, and a clear, transparent sky as well, you should be able to see it almost directly overhead this month. Just up to the left of Vega, with binoculars, you might spot a double star, Epsilon Lyra. It's actually two stars, Epsilon 1, Epsilon 2. But if you use a telescope, when the seeing is good, you'll see that each of these is itself a double star. So it's called the double-double. Also, to the left of the line between Altair and Deno, there's a really sweet little constellation called Delphinus the Dolphin. Then rising as the night moves on from the east is the square of Pegasus. And above that is the Andromeda galaxy. That can be found fairly easily by starting with the star at the top left of the square called AlphaRat moving one star over to the left and up a bit, forth round a bit to the next bright star, and then turn sharp right, you'll find one star before long, and following that, you may spot a little fuzzy blob, and that's the Andromeda galaxy. And now the planets. Jupiter, is visible throughout the hours of darkness, lying up to the left of the teapot in Sagittarius. It reached opposition on July the 14th, and is now visible in the south, southeast as darkness falls. And crosses the meridian, so highest in elevation, at 11.30pm BST at the start of the month, and by 9.30pm by month end. Its magnitude dims slightly from minus 2.7 to minus 2.6 during the month, whilst its angular size falls slightly from 47 to 44 arc seconds. Sadly, even when due south, it will only have an elevation of about 16 degrees above the horizon so the atmosphere will limit our views. A highlight on the night sky page gives the times when the great red spot faces the Earth. Saturn. Well, Saturn follows Jupiter into the sky some eight degrees behind as August begins. It reached opposition on the 20th of July, so again is visible throughout the hours of darkness, and along with Jupiter, dominates the southern sky in the late evening. Its magnitude drops slightly during the month from plus 0.1 to plus 0.3, whilst its angular size decreases from 18.4 to 18 arcseconds. The ring spans some 42 arcseconds across and at 22 degrees to the line of sight have opened up very slightly in some previous months. Saturn lies in Sagittarius, close to the border of Capricornus. Sadly again, its lower elevation when crossing the meridian will somewhat limit our views of this most beautiful planet. Now Mercury. Well, it's barely visible in the pre-dawn sky as August begins, with a magnitude of minus 0.9 and a 6.1 arc-second disk. As it moves away from the Earth, it becomes less visible, and it passes behind the Sun on August the 17th. Now Mars. In Pisces, can be seen towards the southeast at the start of the month, rising three hours after sunset as August begins, and two hours by its end. Its magnitude will rise from minus 1.1 to minus 1.8 during the month, as its angular size increases from 14.6 to 18.7 arcseconds. It reaches an elevation of about 40 degrees as dawn approaches, for amateur telescopes that everyone see features, such as surface major on its surface, when the seeing conditions are good. And finally, Venus. Well, Venus rises about 2 a.m. in the north-northeast throughout the month, but as the sun rises later as the days pass, the interval between Venus rise and sunrise increases by about 20 minutes. It shines at magnitude minus 4.5 as August begins, dropping to minus 4.3 by month end, whilst the angular size shrinks from 27 to 20 arc seconds. During the same time, however, it says, which is the illuminated percentage of the disk, increases from 43 to 59%, which is why the fall in magnitude is not that great. Venus reaches greatest elongation west on August the 12th, some 46 degrees away from the sun. Lying in Taurus as August begins, it passes into the upper left of Orion on the 5th of August, before moving into Gemini on the 13th, and ends the month lying about nine degrees below Pollux, the head of one of the heavenly twins. And finally, the highlights of the month. Well, August is a great month to view Jupiter. As I've said earlier, it lies in Sagittarius, but sadly only reaches an elevation of 16 degrees when crosses the meridian. An interesting observation is that the great red spot appears to be diminishing in size. At the beginning of the last century, it spanned about 40,000 kilometres across, but now only appears to be about 16,500 kilometres across. The shrinking rate appears to be accelerating, and observations indicate it's now reducing in size by about 580 miles per year. Will, I wonder, it eventually disappear? I give a list on the night sky page of the best late evening times when the great red spot is facing the Earth. So now let's move on. August 1st, late evening. If it's clear, you see Jupiter towards the south, above a waxing gibbous moon, with Saturn over to its left. On the 9th of August, Mars can be seen above a waning moon, one day before third quarter. And of course, we have a meteor shower this month. On the mornings of the 12th to the 13th, perhaps from midnight to dawn, look out for the Perseid meteors. The early morning of the 12th of August will probably give us the best chance if clear of viewing the shower. But the peak is quite broad, it's well-observing on the nights before and after. Most meteors are seen looking about 50 degrees from the radiant which lies between Perseus and Cassiopeia. On the 11th, the moon at third quarter rises just after midnight, so as night goes on, its light will begin to hide the fainter meteors. On the 12th and 13th, it rises later, and its phase will have reduced, so its effects will be less. Now, you need to view a very wide area of the sky. Normal binoculars really won't work. But there's a rather interesting pair of 2.1 times 42. They're almost opera glasses. Vixen make them as do others. I've reviewed that one in the Astronomy Digest, which is linked to on the Night Sky page. And that gives you a field of view of 27 degrees and will enable you to see fainter meteors in that area. On August the 15th, before dawn, Venus can be seen below a very thin crescent moon but you'll need to have a low horizon between the east and northeast. You may well need binoculars, but please do not use them after the sun has risen. An interesting one is, on August the 31st, about 6 minutes past 5 a.m., I spotted on Stellarium that the International Space Station will pass very close to Mars, nominally at 05.06.45 BST. That's assuming Solarium is right. Just after 30 seconds later, it passes very close to the Pleiades cluster above. I usually mention something to do with the Moon. And this month, I'm going to mention the Hyginus Rill, which is best visible on August the 9th and 25th, because that's when the Terminator lies close by. For some time, a debate raged as to whether the crates on the Moon were caused by impacts or volcanic activity. We now know that virtually all were caused by impact, but it's thought that the hygienist crater that lies in the centre of the rill may well be volcanic in origin. It's an 11 kilometres wide rimless pit in contrast with impact craters which have raised rims, and its close association with the rill of the same name associates it with internal lunar events. It can be quite easily seen to be surrounded by dark material, and it is thought that an explosive release of dust and gas created a vacant space below the surface, so the overlying part of the surface collapsed into it, so forming the crater.
1: Thanks for that, Ian. And for our Southern Hemisphere listeners, here's Haritina Mogosanu and Samuel Lesky with the dark sky where you are.
7: Kia from New Zealand.
6: Kia ora from New Zealand. We are Haritina Mogosanu
7: and Samuel Lesky
6: with the Southern Hemisphere night sky segment for the broadcast. In August 2020, we have a couple of spectacular planets in the evening sky. Jupiter and Saturn, the center of our galaxy, climbs its zenith and with it, all the beautiful deep sky objects that we're so looking forward to seeing every
7: year. And unfortunately for us, although there are many meteor showers in the northern part of the sky, They are quite low on the horizon for us to enjoy them, as northern hemispherians do.
6: Probably this is one of the better features of the sky in the north. You can see a really good meteor shower when it occurs. Here's what's in the sky in August.
7: First, the planets. With the launch of NASA's Perseverance, as well as the UAE's and China's Mars missions, all eyes are on Mars for the next few months. Our eyes will be on Mars as well because from now until October, Mars is only going to get better and better in the night sky. At the start of the month, it rises at just after 11pm in Pisces, 95 million kilometres away. At that distance, it's only a tiny 14.6 arc seconds in size, which is not much smaller than Saturn, less the rings of course.
6: By the end of the month, the red planet is, Still in Pisces and rising at just before 10pm and has got about 20 million kilometers closer to us. This will put Mars at a size of nearly 19 arc seconds in the eyepiece, bigger than Saturn and just under half the size of Jupiter. By early October, it will be just over 60 million kilometers away and nearly 23 arc seconds in size. You've got two months to get used to observing the red planet and improving your imaging skills to capture the stunning details of the planet as it reaches opposition. When it's so close to Earth, you can even draw Mars as you look at it through a telescope. And the best thing about that is that the main feature that we see through the telescope, the top or bottom of Circe's major, is where Perseverance
7: is headed to. The two gas giants that are dominating the evening sky are also a great sight to see over August. Saturn rises between Capricornus and Sagittarius before sunset at around 4.20pm, and by sunset it's nearly 15 degrees above the horizon. At the end of the month it is rising two hours earlier, so it's in a very fortunate position for observing in the early evening. Opposition for Saturn is on the 2nd of August 2021, so we've got a year to wait. Though at 1.4 billion kilometres, it's not going to look a whole lot different throughout the month.
6: Jupiter rises about 40 minutes before Saturn in Sagittarius throughout the month and joins Saturn in a very favourable viewing position in the early evening. Great for the astronomers who like to go to bed early. A great feature of Jupiter is that you can witness an eclipse many times a month. One of these is from 9.18pm on 7th of August when you can watch Europa disappear into the brightness of Jupiter followed by the shadow appearing on the planet's disk at 10.25pm.
7: Venus tracks its way closer and closer to the Sun in our early morning sky throughout the month. The brightest of the planets is visible just below Orion, and ends the month near Procyon in Canis Minor. Mercury is heading behind the Sun as the month progresses, so it's not going to be visible except at the very start of the month, and then with some difficulty.
6: Scorpius! has been dominating the night sky so far in winter as it occupies the zenith in the evening. Now we are seeing Sagittarius rising higher and higher each night and dragging with it the constellation of
7: Capricornus. We have some good news for the people who like golf. From New Zealand, the Capricorn, which is supposed to be a goat with a horn, alluding to the legend of the Horn of Plenty, looks in fact exactly like a golf flag. Yet a gigantic one. On the other side of Scorpius, Libra, the scale, is on a descending path onto the horizon. And Virgo star, Speaker is even closer to the horizon.
6: In the morning, we are seeing the return to our skies of Orion rising earlier and earlier each night. Up down. The season of Matariki is closed now and the Pleiades is also becoming more and more visible in the morning sky, rising at 3 a.m.
7: Moving to the deep sky objects, they are fantastic at this time of the year. As the centre of the Milky Way reaches the zenith, it brings up the amazing nebula of Omega, Eagle, Triffid and Lagoon. Lagoon is an amazing nebula to look at in a telescope with a large open cluster, NGC 6530, next to the bright nebula. A short distance away is the Triffid Nebula or M20. It's easy to spot the distinctive shape that lead to its common name.
6: Heading down the Milky Way towards Scutum, you'll find the Omega Nebula, or M17. This is a bright nebula, easily visible in even modest telescopes. Not far from Omega, you will find the much fainter Eagle Nebula, or M16, which is home to the Pillars of Creation from the famous Hubble Space Telescope image of this nebula. And on that note, we're wishing
7: you... Please, guys, everyone...
6: Clear skies.
7: And see you next month. See you next month.
0: Thanks for that, Haratina and Sam. And now on to the feedback. So first up, uh, we've had a lot of people getting in touch, especially on Facebook and through our email form on our website, wanting to express that they they want to get the JODcast back. They are missing the JODcast. And again, I'd like to apologize for the delay, but thank you so much for getting in touch to tell us that you miss it. That honestly meant a great deal. And the other thing I wanted to bring up is actually related to what you were saying about Flickr, Emma. Uh, Because, of course, we have our own Jodcast group on Flickr. And some folks have produced some really spectacular images of Neowise on there. I'd like to highlight one by Mary McIntyre, which features some noctilucent clouds and neo in there. It is absolutely gorgeous. If you can pull up the Flickr page, it is quite a recent one. And I'd just like to say, hats off. I can fill up some stats for you, hopefully, Emma, as our resident person who knows something about astrophotography. I'm just getting the image up myself, and honestly, that is a breathtaking image. I mean, so notlucent clouds um, are something that have always eluded me. Um, I've I've never been able to spot them myself. For context, these are kind of quite rare, um, wispy clouds that you you'll see at sunrise or sunset, um, and um, they really do create just this beautiful um, landscape, I guess, to contrast against the the rest of the the night sky and yeah this this image that uh mary has posted is just oh i'm looking at it now and it is beautiful so uh so kudos there let's have a look so taken from oxfordshire uk with a canon camera 1100d 300 millimeter zoom lens to be honest a lot like i said my brand of astrophotography is um just f- phone up to an eyepiece kind of a thing. I do, I do have a camera that's a compact camera, which has got, well, it's got, it's got a 30 times optical zoom, so it's not too bad. It, it, it can do the moon, um, pretty well, but, uh, yeah, I, I must say that I'm not, not all up on, you know, DSLR photography, and astrophotography, but, um, from what, from what I know, that's a, that's a very nice image. <laughs> that's your official astronomical verdict very nice yeah I mean I mean you said again I I have I have become very very um what's the word S- since being in Manchester I have I have lost a lot of my uh kind of practical astronomy knowledge I think as well it's partly when you do it for the day job right um I'm, I'm I spend all day staring at my laptop screen trying to work out the mysteries of space if you if you want to romanticize it so um then a lot of the time I've kind of had my fill and uh, I'm not necessarily having time to go out myself but it's something that i've been trying to get into more definitely so uh perhaps i can uh get back into that because yeah some of these wise images they are just inspiring and if you want to get in touch you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net on twitter at
1: twitter.com slash jodcast
0: facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast youtube at youtube.com slash jodcast
1: flickr at flickr.com slash group slash
0: And please don't send us posts at the moment because we will not be able to pick it up, but uh, hopefully that will change sometime in the future and we'll look forward to receiving any from you once that's the case. Thanks to Rosita Kokotanikova for the interview. The editors were Crispin Agar, Joseph Vinicky, George Bendo, Lizzie Lee and Michael Wright. The producer was Fiona Porter. Until next time... Jordan. 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 Damn it. Gonna have to redo that one. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure do the magic of editing. It'll be fine.